You're listening to Rhodey Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio Online. This is New York Times bestselling author Catherine Alto reading from her latest book, Writing Wild, Women, Poets, Ramblers, and Mavericks Who Shape How We See the Natural World. I invite you to put the kettle on and listen in. Our journey begins in Wasdale, one of the most remote valleys in England's Lake District. In the pink pre-dawn light of midsummer, I set out on a narrow lane lined in dry stone walls, overflowing in fragrant wild honeysuckle and mustard lichen. I pass St. Olaf's, possibly England's smallest church, a stone structure set amid a grove of yews in ancient Viking fields. I lift the latch at a path marked Scoffell Pike, step through the gate, and hear the metallic clink break the morning silence. I cross a pasture toward a wooden bridge and onto a narrow ascending gravel trail. The way is up, but Scoffell Pike, the peak I'm aiming for and England's tallest, is hidden for the moment by Goat Crag. I walk through Bracken Close, then rise along the rocky cascades of Lingmel Gill and higher through alpine meadows of purple sassafrage and carpets of moss along Brown Tongue. Above me is Black Crag, a peak shorter than my destination, and I stop here to appreciate the pleasures of total silence. When I begin hiking again, I hear my breath and my feet crunching in the gravel. Somewhere in the clear air above me, a ring oozel calls, pauses, then sings a warbled song that sounds like marbles in hand. An hour passes, 1,500 feet climbed. Higher up at Lingmel Coal, the saddle between Broad Crag and Scoffell Pike, Herdwick sheep rest in boulder shadows where they leave tufts of black and white wool and parsley fern. Above me, a sharp ping, ping, ping of a buzzard against the fingernail moon. The sun is rising and soon it will be hot. My legs are strong and I travel light. I don't mean to overtake two sets of highly kitted men, but I do, and I wink at them. Hello, Catherine. Welcome to Rhodey Radio. Uh, thanks, Jessica. It's nice to be with you at last. Do you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure. Well, hello, everybody. My name is Catherine Alto, and I am a landscape historian, garden designer, speaker, I suppose, and I am a writer of narrative nonfiction. I've written three books. I've written uh, a book called Nature and Human Intervention, published in 2011, The Natural World of Winnie the Pooh, Walk Through the Forest That Inspired the Hundred Acre Wood, which was published uh, in 2015, and my recent book, Writing Wild, Women, Poets, Ramblers, and Mavericks Who Shape How We See the Natural World. And so I write books, I write essays for magazines like Outside and Smithsonian, and I teach narrative nonfiction. So I do a few different things. And I'm an American, I should say, an American expat. I have dual citizenship. So I'm recording this in beautiful Devon, England, which is about 200 miles southwest of London. So that's where I'm sitting right now on a gray afternoon in December. But it's nice to be with you, Jessica. Please tell us, what are you drinking today for tea time in England? 
Tea time in England. Well, I am drinking a flat white. I am drinking a bit of foamy coffee. And, and I just saw my family downstairs eating mince pies. So when I'm done with this interview, I'm going to go back downstairs. And so they're, they're, they're really enjoying tea time right now. Hello, Roadie Radio listeners. I hope you've had a chance now to pour yourself a cup of tea or a mug of coffee. And join me, Jessica Diavanza, Community Engagement Librarian at Barrington Public Library, as we share tea time from across the pond with New York Times best-selling author Catherine Alto. In this interview, she starts off by telling us about the inspiration behind her latest book, Writing Wild, which was published in June of 2020 by Timber Press. In 2017, I was thumbing through my Twitter feed and I follow Outside Magazine and I saw an article that caught my eye. It said 25 books all well-read travelers should read. And I said, I like to travel. So I clicked on it and I immediately noted the date. It was published in 2003. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. They're resharing an article that's almost 15 years old. And then I looked through, read it. And then I thought, hmm, 22 out of the 25 books were written by white guys. And I said, look, times have changed rapidly in the last 15 years, especially. And so I wrote a response back to the poor social media person on Twitter. And I said, hey, I could do better. And they said, hey, do better. And so I, I was put in touch with an editor at Outside Magazine. And within a few months, I had written a rebuttal, a gentle rebuttal. I'm not snarky um, and mean, but it was like, hey. And it was, I had a nature focus. And that article really struck a chord with people. And it was shared and retweeted and all sorts of things all over thousands of times, including by the, my friend, the nature writer, Robert McFarlane. And he, he loved the article and he said it was wide ranging and deep delving and, and giving a, a diverse chorus of voices more, more of a stage. So Basically, what I did was a lot of academics talk about the, uh, these nature writers, but what I did was I, I, I took this diverse chorus of voices and I made it more uh, accessible for the general public, which is my aim in everything I do. I highly research my work, but I write it so that, you know, my father, who was a conservative farmer, would read it. So my publisher came to me and said, hey, are you writing a book? And I said, no, would you like me to? And within a few weeks, I'd signed a contract and set out the beginnings of this book. It was slightly different in my proposal, but my publisher trusts me and I, I changed it a bit. So what it is, I explore the lives, literature, and landscapes of 25 classic, new, and overlooked female nature writers. And it's kind of like the book I wish I always could have read when I was studying nature writers at Berkeley in 1990 or so. So it's kind of like a girlfriend's guide to nature writing, but men can read it too. And at the end of most chapters, I include what my editor and I called side paths. So really, and which are introductions to other women writing in the same field as the main, the subject of that main essay. So really about 75 women uh, uh, stretching over about 200 years are featured. Like so many authors who had books published in 2020, Catherine was quick to transition from a scheduled book tour to virtual author events when the COVID-19 pandemic made it impossible to travel. I asked her what this was like and how it impacted her work. 
Yeah, well, it was scheduled to come out in April and, you know, bookstores were shutting, you know, everywhere. And I, yeah, I had a big, I'm, I'm, I'm one of these authors who's kind of, who loves to speak. I'm, I'm one of these rare extroverted authors. So I love, I do what's called narrative performance with my book talks. They're more than just book talks. They're, you know, hour plus long event and full of visuals. And it combines a bit of my, my theater interest. So yeah, so all that was uh, shut. And basically the book was, was shoved back a couple months. So it came out at the end of June. And by then, you know, I, I was learning about Zoom. I had never used Zoom in May, but now I'm a pro. So most events have shifted to uh, virtual. So for example, last week, I, I do a lot of speaking at garden clubs and, uh, and libraries like I'm doing now, but libraries, museums, universities, natural history museums, schools. So many of those have remained and I've given Zoom talks. And then the other ones uh, have just been, you know, shoved to probably the fall of, of this coming year. So maybe about nine months from now. So, and then, so my big challenge has been, how do I take my sort of theater skills and break down the virtual wall between myself and my audience? And how do I create a sense of community? And how do I use the themes in the books as reassurances that, you know, that time, time will pass and this pandemic will, will be something we all get through? So a lot of the writers, you know, so I draw on people like Mary Oliver, who provides a lot of solace and reassurance to people even when we're not in a pandemic, but for all sorts of life, life challenges. And yeah, it's been really, really meaningful. And I have honestly, I've never been busier. I am so busy teaching online and getting other proposals together. I mean, my life as a writer is often, well, it's no different than in a pandemic. It's just that I go for a run. I spend about an hour and a half outside. <laughs> I sit back down. If I'm really working, I don't go you know, I, 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 I'm quite isolated. So this has been nice because, you know, my children have been able to come home, one of whom is in, at Brown University in Providence. So it's been fun to have him back too. Writing Wild is filled with profiles of women writing about the natural world, some historical and some contemporary. I asked Catherine about the amount of research involved behind the writing of the book and how she was able to make them all come alive so vividly on the page. So the kind of research I did to make the women come alive on the page was different for every woman. It was really, as a travel and nature writer, I want to make people feel immersed in the landscape. And so my modus operandi in my daily life and as a writer is is to create personal essays. So I'm, I'm really a person, I'm, I'm an essayist. And the way to break down the barrier between myself and my reader is to write in a conversational tone that makes it feel like we're on a walk together. So the, the, the form of a personal essay is really, you know, it's like I always think of them as eight mile circular walks between myself and, and the reader. And so I'm quite conversational. So what I did for as many women as I could is I visited the landscapes where they lived. And that's, I'm a very diligent primary source researcher. In fact, my editors have to drag me out of the research and say, get, get the writing done. <laughs> because I actually really, really enjoy the research. So I hiked Scottwell Pike, England's tallest mountains, and, uh, to follow in the footsteps of Dorothy Wordsworth, who 
wrote, who was considered one of the important influences, to, and a writer in her own right, to the Romantics. And then I visited Cooperstown, New York, and canoed in a lake there and went on walks and handled first edition copies of Rural Hours, which was published in 1850, four years before Henry David Thoreau wrote Walden, I might say. Uh, everyone thinks that Walt Thoreau is the uh, father of American and, you know, nature writing, and, and perhaps he is, but he's not the first. It was a woman, Susan Fenimore Cooper. So I climbed mountains, I canoed, I mudlarked, I read diaries, I held artifacts that women used, I watched films, I accessed archives, I spoke to real the living writers. It was a funny transition when I shifted from writing about the writers who were, who were no longer with us to shift to interviewing the women who are still alive. And it got the kind of heebie-jeebies because I was like, well, how am I, how am I going to write about these real women? I mean they're going to read my work. And so I, sh I always had interviews with them. So we did, it went on walks. We had interviews in London or by the phone. I wanted to hear their voices. I wanted to get a sense of each woman. And I looked at them as, as kind of as characters, which is what you do in narrative nonfiction. And, and then we, you know, getting, reading all of their work, of course, reading everything that these most things that, that women have written, and then extracting the most kind of relevant excerpts and then getting permissions to to put those in the book. So one of my students once said, you research like a bulldog and write like a kitten. And I would say, I like that because I, am, I, I, I want to exhaust the possibilities for material to spark with myself and to create something new. That's where something new, new writing comes is when the writer interacts with, with primary sources. So I know that happens and you just have to do it. So I'm really, I'm really proud of Writing Wild. Many Rhode Islanders will recognize the final profile in Writing Wild as Rhode Island's own author, Elizabeth Rush, and her book, Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore. I asked Catherine what prompted her to write the concluding essay for Writing Wild about Elizabeth and how we should think of her in relationship to the other women featured in the book. Yeah, well, Elizabeth Rush is a beautiful lyrical writer. Her book Rising was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize in nonfiction. The reason why she is the last person in the book is because she is doing everything and she is and she has everything and she's writing about climate change. So if you look at someone like Dorothy Wordsworth who Dorothy Wordsworth is very different. So the contrast in 200 years in sort of women's history is made evident as you can see it on the page. So Dorothy Wordsworth didn't have access to universities, whereas Elizabeth Rush, of course, does. Dorothy Wordsworth could have written in her own name. I know that Susan Fenimore Cooper did not use her name. So women often used by a lady or they wrote anonymously. So we couldn't use our names where of course, as of course Elizabeth Rush does. Elizabeth puts herself in the narrative and that makes, she uses the word I. And, and actually, if you look at the difference between Henry David Thoreau's Walden and Susan Fenimore Cooper's Rural Hours, one reason I argue in my book that Walden and Thoreau have a longer life and are considered classics as opposed to her work. It's because he had the luxury of being a white privileged male in the very simple way of being able to use the word I in his writing. So you hear 
I, 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 one time I counted just for fun as one is one does, I counted I 17 times on one page. And that gives it, you know, this, there's this zest when Thoreau writes about it being in the landscape. He wrote, you know, I went to the woods to live deliberately. Well, that I was not something that women could use. It was considered to have the stench of ego and like, why is a woman, if a woman couldn't use her name, she's certainly not using her, the I, and it's even more ill-mannered than the, you know, the, the desire to actually put your name on a book. So that is a really, so all of those things, you know, access to education, using the word I, and putting one's name on one's book. But the other important thing is that if you look at Dorothy Wordsworth, she received many reprimanding letters from one of her aunts, and, and she said, the aunt would write, you know, why are you walking by moonlight at midnight? You know, aren't you concerned about your safety? And forget, forget about safety. What, if, what are people going to think of you as a single woman walking alone? And whereas Elizabeth Rush is out there in Providence, you know, and other, other shorelines. And, you know, she writes about Tupelos and she writes about indigenous peoples who are being displaced and environmental justice, all within the uh, overall context of climate change. So that, right, having a woman who is embodying all of these traits and she's writing about climate change, which is the existential threat that we're all experiencing right now, makes her the most appropriate woman because uh, to end the book with, you know, and Dorothy Wordsworth, who wrote in, you know, 1803. And I have to say her brother nicked some of her writing. The most famous uh, poem in English language, arguably, is Daffodils by William Wordsworth. And he stole a bunch of her writing. He stole some of her stanzas. Um, they never gave her credit. So she was writing in a different world than we live in now. And it, I, I like to say that it kind of bookends the industrial revolution, the effects of it. And so for those reasons, having Dorothy begin the book with very few opportunities and uh, rights that men had and ending with Elizabeth Rush is quite symbolic to me. During our time together, I asked Catherine to read a passage from Writing Wild. Here, she shares the opening of her essay on Mary Oliver. Attention is the beginning of devotion upstream. Cape Cod, Massachusetts is a hook-shaped apostrophe of dune beaches and marshes, tide pools and lighthouse punctuating the North Atlantic. Sculpted by waves, wind, and winter storms, this eastern outpost is the place Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Mary Oliver once called home. In the weather-beaten landscape, she wrote poetry and prose inspired by the world around her. On a balmy weekend in September, I set out from Boston and loop around Cape Cod to Provincetown, the spot where the pilgrims first landed and Oliver lived for more than 40 years. A former fishing village, it's now a rakish arts colony of worn brick sidewalks and picket fences. Intense sunlight has long attracted painters here from around the world. Rainbow flags on porch posts rise and fall in the ocean breeze. I fill my canvas handbag with Oliver's poetry, along with a thermos of tea and chocolate biscuits and hop on a bike. It's mid-morning and I'm cycling a little north to Blackwater Pond in the Cape Cod National Seashore. I find the trailhead to the beach forest walk, a sandy circular path through tupelo, sassafras, pines, and oaks. 
There are blackbirds, bluebirds, nuthatches, and orioles overhead. And as I cross a wooden bridge, I see a mosh pit of silver water bugs rippling the water below. Never without a notebook, Oliver cultivated her sense of wonder through her daily practice of rising early in the morning, a time she felt the soul most receptive to insights and walking these beaches, ponds, and forests. As I follow in her footsteps, I remember a more furtive habit of hers. As she wanted no thought to go unrecorded, she would hide pencils on her rambles so she would always have one handy. For someone like me who loves mudlarking, this is such an enticing opportunity that my eyes dart among nooks and crannies and trees and rocks searching for a Mary, Ol Mary Oliver pencil, something I would treasure forever. In combing, I discover other things, gossamer spiderwebs stretching between branches, fly agaric mushrooms with their white speckled red caps and solitude. So now I would like to read one of her more well-known poems. It's called Wild Geese. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. Creative nonfiction is a popular genre for both writers and readers. It stands apart from the traditional journalistic style in the way the author inserts themselves into the narrative. Think of Michael Pollan's The Omnivore's Dilemma or The Library Book by Susan Orleans. I asked Catherine what she loves most about writing creative nonfiction. What I most love about writing creative or narrative nonfiction is known by a few different names is I appreciate the opportunity to connect with readers through the first person singular I. I like permission to do that. And I think people learn better. I know people learn better through scene creation and painting with words. So I, it's, it's really literary journalism, which sounds highfalutin, but what it means is I, I pay more attention to, to craft and I borrow fictional devices to make my nonfiction come alive. It's, it's the way I like to learn about science and, and, and the arts as well. I also like the opportunity to get to know the author as a character. I, I, yes, they're the reporter or they're the journalist or they're the writer, but they also are a character and like, I'm interested in why does the subject resonate with them? And I'm interested in how they think. You can often understand how someone thinks on the page uh, with narrative nonfiction. So it's a highly enriched genre that is that satisfy I was going to be a journalist for many years and I felt there was something that wasn't tapping into 
I wanted something that was a little more literary. I, again, I, I don't like that, but crafted. And there are all sorts of opportunities to write cinematically and use dialogue and internal monologue and rich characterizations and exploring a range of topics, food writing, travel writing, nature writing, cultural critiques, history events, profiles. There are many, many, many different areas. So that that's, that's where I came at it from a, a journalist's perspective. And then it naturally, I was drawn to the the crafted aspect. In addition to writing wild, Catherine is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Natural World of Winnie the Pooh. The inspiration to write the book came from her children, who were three, six, and nine when the family first moved to England in 2007. They began walking the ancient public footpaths around their new home, and within a week, had walked more than 30 miles together. So we were reading books to our young children and walking a lot. And my kids asked, mom, is there a hundred acre wood and can we walk there? And I said, let me find out. I'm really interested in uh, literary landscapes and, and the intersection between literature and landscapes. So I ended up writing this book and, and it became really a meditation on the changing nature of childhood, on the makings of a classic, on the collaboration between E.H. Shepard, the illustrator, and A.A. Milne. And it became also a book, like a field guide to this literary landscape and the rare flora and fauna that inspired A.A. Milne to write really 80,000 words for children. You wouldn't know it, but because of their impact on the world. But yeah, so I, I got to hang out in Hartfield, the place where Milne lived. And I have gotten to know the people who, who lived for 45 years in, in his home, far longer than he did. I've taken a bubble bath in A.A. Milne's green bathtub and and just retraced footsteps because I went into the project thinking that, you know, I'm a serious historian. I have to write this book. But Winnie the Pooh fans wouldn't allow me to have a, you know, an academic voice. And I, I didn't want to go into it, but it took me a while because I, I had some funny breakthroughs when you're playing Pooh Sticks on the original Pooh Sticks bridge and you come across Eeyore houses and you, everything, you begin to think that you're walking through the real pages of the book. And I, I, I get letters all the time from people. I just got one last week from somebody and I have one above me here that people have written to me around the world. And, and it, it became a New York Times bestseller. It was on national public radio. It was a People Magazine best book pick. It went a little bit crazy. And what it shows, I'm not saying that to go, oh, I'm so good. I'm saying that because the impact of those books on people's memories is very long lasting. And it shows you the importance of gardens, landscapes, and literature in, in children's lives. So I had so much fun writing it, you know, looking at the original Winnie the Pooh manuscripts at Trinity College, Cambridge, handling the original drawings at the V&A in London, reading original letters that Milne wrote to E.H. Shepard. And it just, you, I don't think anyone could have more fun writing a book than I did writing that one, for sure. That was a lot of fun. On behalf of Barrington Public Library, I thank you for listening. If you made it to the end of this episode and want to learn more about writing wild, Catherine Alto will join us virtually from her home in Devon, England for an author talk and Q&A on Thursday, February 25th, 2021 at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can learn more and register to get the Zoom link at barringtonlibrary.org.
Today's theme music is Spring Migration and Fur by Chad Crouch, along with A Bird Revealing the Unknown to the Sky by Michael Byron. Special thanks to Royalty Free Sound Archive at soundbible.com. Rhodey Radio is a project of the Office of Library and Information Services and is supported by a grant from the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities. You're listening to Rhodey Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio Online. When you're listening to Rhodey Radio, you know you're listening to something good.